Well, it's been <clears throat> a couple of weeks, but uh, you can turn your Bible now back to the book of Proverbs, to Proverbs chapter, uh, chapter 6, where we left off uh, recently in our uh, verse-by-verse study of the book of Proverbs. <clears throat> I want to ask you, I'll start by asking you a question for those of you that have children in the home. Uh, we're going we're gonna to jump around in terms of application. We know that the book of Proverbs is largely written um, by a parent for parents, and it's also written by a parent for young people, so there's lots of application. And of course, um, you don't have to be either a parent or a young person to benefit from it because it's, it's wisdom that leads to life as we come to know the Lord Jesus and trust his word more. But, but I want to I start really where Solomon begins this final section of, verse, of chapter 6 that starts in verse 20 and ends uh, in verse 35 at the end of the chapter. And, and here's, here, here's the challenge that comes out of this, okay? And this is, this is a hard question if you're a parent to, to um, answer, but I, I, it, it's really what Solomon is saying to those of us who are parents. Here, here's the question. Have we as parents taught our children biblical truth well enough that if they obeyed our counsel, they would avoid sin and walk in righteousness? Have we as parents taught our children biblical truth well enough that if they were to actually follow the counsel that we've given them, would they avoid sin and walk in righteousness? And and you'll see where this question comes because Solomon, as we sort of parachute into the text here, he says, verse 20, My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. Now watch this. And when you walk about, they will guide you. Even when you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp, and teaching is a light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Do you see that? Now, now uh, my friend Jim Neuheiser is saying, when we think about parenting, there's really three variables that lead to how our children turn out as adults. One is the parent's role, right, what we do as parents. One is what the child decides to do. They're, they're an independent operator, right? We can't control them ultimately. So what the parent does, what the child chooses to do. And then the third variable, of course, is the sovereign plan of God over their life. So in asking this question, parents, have you taught your children well enough that if they were to heed your counsel, would they avoid sin and walk in righteousness? I'm not saying that if we did everything right, our children would turn out perfectly, because that's not true. That's not true. There There are faithful, godly parents who have done well in parenting and whose children have chosen to not walk in the things of the Lord. And likewise, there have been very foolish parents. There have been broken homes. There have been uh, uh, overt abuse and, and violence and, and, and horrific sin. And by God's grace in that home, God says, Bloop, and he pulls that child and draws them to himself, and they walk in Christian maturity. We know that. We know those stories. So it, it's not that we believe in a, a, a formulaic approach to parenting. If we do all the right things, our children turn out well. That's not the biblical view. But what Solomon is doing in asking us this question is is this. He's saying, Mom and Dad, are we being faithful to do our part? 
Is, is, is that is that true? And if not, where are adjustments that need to be made? And of course, uh, you know, this works for grandparents too. Those of you that are grandparents, it works for great-grandparents, right? Uh, it works for those of you um, who maybe don't have children or don't have grandchildren or children nearby, but you're here in Grace Bible Church and you're coming alongside other families and other children in Awana, in Sunday School, in Children's Church, and these other ministries. But that's a great question because what Solomon is saying is, uh, once again, we've seen this theme again, he, he's pleading with his children to take seriously the biblical truth that he's teaching them and calling them to remember them and walk in those things because there are wonderful benefits. Now, at the front end of this section, it, it looks like, it sounds like Solomon is doing what he's done uh, several times before in this book. He's just saying, son, listen to me, here's some biblical teaching, don't forget it, walk in it, it's important. You know, he's having that same sort of uh, fatherly appeal talk with his children but you'll notice there's a purpose here there's a very specific purpose it's not son listen to what i'm saying and remember it just in general you will see he starts there but then it funnels down to a very specific purpose and we see that specific purpose i read it a moment ago in verse 24 just look back there chapter 6 verse 24 what is this admonition designed to do verse 24 to keep you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress so we're right back where chapter 5 left off in coming back to talk about sexual sin now i want you to notice um, we are barely six chapters into a book of 31 chapters and this is about the third time and he's not done yet that he's brought up the topic of sexual sin with his children. And we say, with the book of Ecclesiastes, another book that Solomon wrote, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? When we look at the threats to our children and our grandchildren and children in our church here today, we look at the threats that can derail their life, that can lead them into life-dominating sin, that can pull them away from the things of the Lord and and leave them left with um, liabilities that they will carry the rest of their life. Sexual sin is on the top of that list, isn't it? And here's Solomon right here, once again, reminding us as parents, we've got to keep talking about this. We've got to keep addressing it. And good night. There is every form of media and culture and music and entertainment and social media that that is not just talking about sex. It's got a megaphone with with a 5,000-watt amplifier broadcasting all of this there is a message there is a view there is a perspective and we understand as the god of this world satan has an agenda for our children it's not a message of information coming from uh, a, a sinful culture it is a message of persuasion You've got the church that is going out evangelizing, calling people to Christ. And you have the culture going out and calling people to more and more living out their depravity. Both messages, hear me, are apologetic. They're evangelistic. They're trying to win a heart. They're trying to to win an argument. They're trying to persuade you, trying to convince you to live a certain way. And, of course, the world's message is a lot more appealing because the world's sinful message resonates with your own sinful flesh. That's that's why so much in this world that is wrong is attractive in some ways to people. 
So that, so that's where he goes. The, the introduction here is designed to come back to the issue of talking about sexual sin. And as you'll see, his strategy here as a parent is to help his children to develop a self-control in regard to sexual temptation. And like in chapter 5, he's going to give us several helpful things. Now, now, so here's how this works. If you're a parent, this is your parenting agenda. This is, this is the outline that we need to be following when we sit down and talk to our children, our grandchildren. If you're a young person, this is, this needs to be the, loaded up in the operating system of your life and meditated upon and acted on and thought through and prayed about. This is the, the plan God gives you to avoid sexual sin and walk in self-control. If, if you, if you have a pulse today, which I think is most of us. Um, this is a this is God's will. This is God's instruction for all of us to avoid sexual temptation. There is not a one of us in the room here today who is not tempted in sexual things in some way, shape, or form. And so, what? Even though it's directed particularly at helping parents and, and and young people, we all need to glean from this because this is not a battle that we ever put our gloves down in fighting against. We keep our guard up constantly till Jesus calls us home. So look at this. Uh, the title of the message today is Self-Control Over Sexual Sin. And you'll see how this develops as he begins. But notice as he begins, we already looked at this sort of uh, by way of introduction, he, talk, he starts here not by talking about sexual sin in particular, he, he begins by reminding his children where do we find the life-saving message? Where do we go for help? And, and, and this is... This is that message again. Teenagers, you're going to get so tired of hearing me say this, but please don't get tired. The the way you go for things that lead to life, the place you go is the Scripture. There is no other place you can go. There is no other counsel. There's no source of information. There's no educational class. It is the Scripture and the Scripture alone that brings life. And so we see here Solomon, like a broken record, which you teenagers don't understand because you don't know records. Actually, records are coming back. LPs are coming back. Anyway, but um, you have to stay in the things of the Lord. Now, notice his admonition. We've seen this before. Obey the commands of your father. Don't forget the teaching of your mother. And, of course, he's not saying my counsel like I'm so smart. We understand Solomon, as he gives counsel, gives instruction, is giving the very word of God to his children. And notice this. Keep them in your heart at all times. I love the language here bind them and tie them now now young people what is it about the heart that's so important um what do you guys think let's let's hear from some teenagers here uh the heart he's talking here about the heart and he's saying take the word of god and bind it tie wrap it duct tape it stick it on there bolt it down what is it about the heart that is so important that we need to have the word of god always right there in the heart what is it about that This is the part where you talk. What do you think? You can't answer if you're under over 25. <laughs> Mr. West, I know that trick. Yeah. Um, he only looks like he's he's over tw- uh, under 25. So yeah. What do you think, Max? Why is the heart so important? Because, because the heart 
That's right. That's absolutely it. Great answer. That is the spiritual part of us. And that, remember what he said in chapter four, the heart is the wellspring of life. Everything in your life flows out of your heart. So to have the word of God in the heart of the child of God, that is, that is a recipe for success. That's where we need to keep it. So it, so here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you know Bible verses. It doesn't matter if you can recite theology. What matters is the word of God is the operating system of your very spiritual heart. That's what matters. And, of course, memorizing and knowing theology are a means to that. But he says, keep them in your heart. Let them run your life, he says, in doing that. That's where the life-saving message is found. Now, now notice this. Before he gets into the specifics, he's going to remind his children, secondly, of the benefits of obeying instruction. Now, n- notice, and this is, this is really quite incredible. What, what, other, what other pursuit could we follow that would bring such amazing benefits? Look at this. He says in verse 22... If you will do this, when you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. And, and you will find, uh, young, young person, as, as you come to know the word of God, um, the Bible becomes your, your, um, your compass in your life. Or, or we might even say it's, it's the Google Maps app of life, right? It's, it's where do you go? It's how do you get there? It's, it's, it's what am I going to find along the way? It's a navigational aid is what he's saying here. It will guide you. That word guide literally means to lead you. And notice also, it will protect you from harm. That little phrase, they will watch over you. You're sleeping. You're, you're dead to the world. You're unconscious. And yet the word of God, because you have walked in the things of God, will guard you. And you say, how does that work? It's in the sense that because you have walked in the things of the Lord and you rest at night, you go to sleep, because you have walked in the things of the Lord, that has ongoing benefits of protection in your life. You will not deal with some of the negative consequences that your friends are dealing with because you've walked in the things of God. That's what he's saying here. It'll protect you. It'll watch you. It'll guard you. Even, even, even when you're not consciously engaged, that will help. And I love this. I love this. They will instruct you, or my Bible says they will talk to you. You should hear the word of God in your heart regularly as you go throughout your life. If you are sitting under good preaching, if you're reading your Bible regularly, if you're memorizing God's word, if you're going to Awana, if you're going to precept studies, if you're going to men's Bible studies, if you're listening to good sermons on the radio, if you're listening to, to uh, Christian music that, that um, upholds biblical theology, if you're doing those things the way... Uh, Solomon says here, it should work is as you're going throughout life, you should have Bible literally talking to you in your inner man regularly. Don't do that, uh, we might think. Um, in, in a moment of, of where I'm tempted to be angry, I might hear, um, do not let bitterness or, la- or put off bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. It may be in a moment where someone has hurt me and I remember the Lord Jesus saying, forgive as you have been forgiven. Uh, you know, it may be, um, you know, you're disagreeing with your parents and, and you remember, it comes right in your mind. You didn't even try. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. It may be a, a boss or, or someone that you're working for that's unreasonable and you remember what Peter says, obey uh, uh, those authority, even those that are unreasonable. Uh, for such 
we do that, we model the Lord Jesus himself. So, so the, if, if you have spent time in the Bible, the normal Christian experience is that that Bible will come in your inner heart at times where you need biblical counsel. Now, that's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. That's not God speaking to you in some mystical way. But it is one of the ways God's wor- God works in your life by bringing Bible verses that you have brought into your life in time in a timely way when you need them so they will talk to you what a wonderful benefit so the summary they are lamps and lights to illumine and guide like the psalm that says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path no doubt proverbs uh, solomon had heard that before and that's what he describes it here verse 23 for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light now notice this he says something and and teenagers you are not going to like what solomon says here but just remember, it's, it's Solomon speaking the very word of God to us. And again, for us old people, this is so relevant for us also, okay? Listen to what he says at the end of 25. The end of, excuse me, the end of, uh, 23. He says, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. Now think about that for a minute, because you've got a track. He's talked about, okay, we, we know we need the Bible, we got that. There are benefits from living in the Bible, we got that. And then he says this, but it's not just biblical information that you need. It's not just knowing the Bible, it's not just being taught, it's not just sitting under good preaching. Here's what he says, do you want to walk in the way of life? Do you want to walk in what God has for us in terms of the the spiritual life that he has? Here's what he says, and this is shocking. You have to learn to receive and grow when somebody reproves you in a biblical way. Do you see that? Now, how many of you love to be reproved? Just put your hands up. Okay, you just love correction. I mean, you're just, okay, that, I don't think any of us really likes that. I mean, it's just kind of uncomfortable, and sometimes it makes us upset. And, but, but, but here, this is, guys, this is why it's so profound. God is saying the one thing that none of us like to do is the very thing that leads to life. Hey, now look on your notes, because I, I, some of the language is a bit ambiguous. Here's what he's saying. It's not just instruction, but correction that we need reproofs designed to train are the way of life. That word discipline, remember, that word discipline means to train. So it's reproofs, it's correction that's designed to train you. Solomon says, those are the way of life. So what do we do? We have to learn to both accept and learn from godly correction because that is what shapes you into a godly person. Now, young person, I'm not trying to get in your kitchen in saying this, but I'm going to say this. How do you respond to correction? How do you respond? It probably starts with mom and dad. There's basic authority, right? That's, that's the base level authority in a child's life. How do you respond to your parents? They love you. They are for you. They give you godly counsel. How do you respond to that? And if your pattern is to grate against that, to get upset at that, to avoid that, to to argue with that, what Solomon is saying here is that you are not moving toward a way of life. You, in fact, it's worse. You are, you are training yourself in resisting godly reproof and in getting angry at godly correction. You are training yourself to be a certain type of person. And that certain type of person does not grow spiritually. Do you see how important this is? Now, old people, I have something to say to you too. 
Okay, as long as I'm going here. No, um, this is true of us too, isn't it? It's not like when we, when we turn out 18 and we leave the home, now all of a sudden we're not under any sort of authority. We're under the authority of government. We're under the authority of church. We're under the authority of employers. And particularly Solomon has in mind here those authorities that are of a spiritual nature in our life. So how do we, old people, how do we respond when we are corrected by a well-intentioned friend who sees a problem and is trying to help us? How, how are we... How do we respond when our pastor or an elder or maybe it's a sermon we hear on the radio that brings true biblical conviction and we're convicted and now we have a choice to make. When the Holy Spirit works through all of these means to bring reproof, to bring correction, what is the, what is the knee-jerk habit of our heart when that happens? And what Solomon says is, if we want life, if we want growth, if we want maturity, we have to train ourselves, you ready? We have to train ourselves to do something that in our nature we do not like to do. And that is not just to receive correction, but to learn from it and to grow from it and even to be thankful for it. Okay, this, this is such a, a profound reminder here. I think we, we probably know that, but it, it shocked me because he says, this is what shapes you. This is what leads to life. And, and I think, you know, I, I, sometimes you, you just go, is that really true? And I, I thought, you know what, who, who are the people in my life that are godly, mature, humble, the, the type of people you want to grow up and be like spiritually? Okay, and maybe, maybe you have some people in your life like that. When I think of, of, of those people in my life, those people that, that I look up to, spiritually speaking, I, I, with some reflection, I thought, you know what? They're humble people. They're people that aren't afraid to say, I'm wrong. They're, not, they're people that are thankful when they're reproved. They're, they grow from correction. They're not, they're not the type of people that just reject that sort of thing. I thought, it, wasn't that an interesting connection? Now, that's, that's just anecdotal. That's just my experience. But we have the God-inspired, inerrant word of God telling us the exact same thing. Okay, so let's strive to be people like that. Teenagers, you can start right now with your teachers, with your parents, with your pastors, with your employer, with your coaches, whoever it is. Even if it's a little bit misguided, as long as they're not telling you to sin, even if it's a little bit misguided, mom, you know, mom doesn't do it every, perfectly every time. She's not a perfect parent, you know that. But insofar as she is giving you godly counsel, submit to her authority, learn from that correction, be a godly wise person, and be thankful for that experience. You guys know how many people, how many people do not have anybody in their life, let alone parents, that give them godly counsel? And as you get older, and as you meet more friends, you go off to college, you get a job, you will, you will find how rare, how rare your home life really is, in a good way. Okay? Let's move on. Benefits, specifically, here, here's the, here's the, sort of the, the main funnel where he's going here, verse 24, to keep you all of this, to learn the Bible, to apply the Bible, to live out the Bible, to learn from correction when it's a biblical in nature. Why? Verse 24, to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now, this is again Solomon's main agenda here is to help his kids avoid sexual sin. And he says, son, the first thing you need to do if you're going to avoid sexual sin, is learn from correction. That's profound in and of itself. Okay? So to keep you from getting involved in sexual sin and to keep you from being deceived by the lies, you're going to see in this section also in the next chapter, that, you know, and we saw it in chapter 5, Solomon keeps talking about the words 
of the adulteress, the flattery, the, um, the smooth speech. And, and remember, that just reminds us that sexual sin always comes with some sort of script. Meaning, we don't fall into sexual sin, or any sin for that matter, without embracing and believing lies. And that's why the emphasis here is on what the adulteress says. He says, if, 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 a, if a young person looks at pornography and there's no, there's no communication from what he's looking at, you say, well, how does that, how does that, you know, uh, how do we have to guard ourselves against, um, uh, in this case, her, her smooth tongue and her words and her flattery? It's not what she's saying to you. It's what you're saying to yourself about her that leads you into sexual sin. So always remember that every temptation, every sin has a script. There's an accompaniment track that always is playing in the background of your temptation. And recognizing that and combating those lies is part of how you avoid falling into sin. Now now notice this. Watch him go straight for the jugular here. Look at what he says. Verse 25. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let you capture you with her eyelids. And, And here's where the issue of self-control comes into full form. How do you avoid sexual sin? It's about the word of God. It's about receiving correction. To what end? To the end that you will be able to say no. Now notice how specific this is. On your notes there, don't covet or be caught by the beauty of other women. And, And of course, by other women, Solomon is saying anybody who you're not married to. Um, and we'll talk about, uh, in fact, this will be a, a side message at some point. We'll talk about what does, what does godly attraction to your own spouse actually look like? I, I think that's a great question to try to answer. Um, we're looking at what not to do here. Don't covet or be caught by the beauty of any other woman who is not your spouse. Now, ladies, you might be thinking, you know, Solomon has guys in view primarily here. That's certainly true. But I want you to remember, ladies, and those of you that have daughters also, these principles work for ladies also. It may not be the physical uh, attraction to a guy, although that may be true, it may be, I mean, think, think of the teenage girl that says, I just want someone to love me. I just want someone to care about me. I just want somebody to call my own. Now, none of those are bad desires, right? But when it turns into coveting, I have to have that, or jealousy, or envy, when you see your friends who have some of those relationships. That's what Solomon is talking about. He's saying that's the danger point. The word here, in my Bible, it's translated desire. Verse 25, do not desire her beauty. It actually is the word for covet. It's the same word used in Exodus 20 and Exodus 5. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's the word. And it parallels what Jesus says in Matthew 5. If anyone lusts after a woman, he's already committed adultery in his heart. It's that same idea of sinfully wanting, sinfully needing to have. So do not desire means covet her beauty. That means wanting for himself in a sexual way. So so here's the test. The moment a man says, I want her, he is both committing sin, that's Matthew 5, and he has started down the road to physical adultery or additional, should be additional, sin. 
Okay, do not covet. Now, this is the self-control. Self-control says when I see somebody who is attractive, what happens in my heart? Okay, guys are getting real practical. That's the question. When you see someone who is attractive, what happens in your heart? And Solomon says, do not covet that woman. Notice number two, do not let her catch you. This is interesting. The word actually means to seize. And it indicates, this is interesting, it indicates being controlled by or captured by her body in such a way that you are being drawn towards sexual sin. The reference here, what Solomon is describing, again, this is so helpful, the reference is to the moment he ceases to practice self-control. He's being controlled by what he sees, not by the Lord's word in his heart. That's the difference. Now, now I don't want to get too far off on this, but I just want to talk briefly um, about two levels of self-control, and this is something that both men and women must be able to develop in our lives. We, we know this works for both because um, uh, the Bible tells us actually in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve is tempted by sin, we see some of the same factors in play. She sees something that is a delight to her eyes, so there's the visual appeal. It's desirable to make her wise, there's the heart appeal. Um, and uh, actually, John picks up on, the, on those three factors, even in, in his uh, letter in 1 John. But, but notice this. Self-control is the key. Now, it is no surprise. And again, parents, we, we, need, we need all the help we can get in parenting. When it comes to our sons, when it comes to the young men in our house, when we go to Titus chapter 2, we're not going to do that right now. Titus chapter 2 talks about how to help old men, old women, young women, and young men. Okay? Right? You got that? Four, four different types of people. And it says to help young men, there is one thing. And, you know, the young women, they've got like six things, right? You know, because they can handle all that. Guys, there's one thing. And one thing only that we need to help the young men in our church and in our families develop. What is it? Urge the young man to be sensible, or we might better translate it, urge the young men to develop Self-control. You think about that? If you have self-control, if you have an ability to say yes to the right things in your life and to say no to the wrong things in your life, do you see all of what opens up at that point? I mean, everything else is education, almost. I mean, that's oversimplifying it. But if you can control yourself, that, that affects positively every other area of your life. And so that's why uh, Paul, talking to Titus, says, hey, remember those young guys in your church? Titus says, yeah, here's the one thing you help them with. Because if they get this, if they develop this, everything else flows out of that. And that's exactly what we see Solomon saying in uh, this text also. Remember, two areas of self-control, and I just give this to you for free, for for reflection, guys, for meditation. Two arenas of self-control, eye control and heart control. Uh, Job helps us with both of these. We've talked about both of these verses before. Job 31.1, Job says what? I've made a covenant with my with my eyes. What's he saying? He's saying, men, we have got to develop self-control in terms of what we look at. So think about this. Where do we go? Where do we choose to go? Where do we look? 
And we live in a, in a hyper-sexualized culture where immodesty and mild forms of pornography are available uh, in any and all spheres of life, practically. So we have to think about what, what level of eye control do we have? Are we willing to go to that place? If we see something, have we trained our eyes to look away? We, we radically amputate sources of temptation. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. And we train ourselves to look away when the occasion arises. Uh, remember what Paul says? You, you can't avoid every experience where you might be tempted. He says, otherwise you'd have to leave the world, right? That's 1 Corinthians. But... We can avoid overt areas just by thinking about where we go. And when an opportunity for sexual temptation arises, we can train our eyes to look away. Um, we talked about the, the code word in our family. When we see occasion for sexual sin, we call it snakes because a snake is what started this whole thing, right? Um, and it's a, a way just uh, for me and the boys to kind of help each other when we come in contact with something that might be sexually tempting. Um, so that can be helpful. Notice also, though, heart control. Job, Job says in verse 7, it's not just eye control, because the real issue is what is my heart doing, right? And if my, Job says in, in Job 31, 7, if my heart then follows my eyes, my eyes see something, okay, what do I do? But if my heart then follows what it want, what, what I'm seeing, and that's what Solomon says, if I covet now, if I lust, if I want in a, a sinful way, now that's where really sin is occurring. So we train ourselves to not let our heart desire or follow our eyes. We don't lust or covet or desire or want for ourselves those things. And we are not overcome by physical beauty. Um, teenagers, guys, learn to not be overwhelmed by beauty. Learn it now. Learn to not lose your head every time a pretty girl walks by, if you want it real practical. Um, because that trains your heart and can lead to terrible things. Okay, so don't covet or be caught by the beauty of women. We would say all women except the one you're married to. Okay, now notice him moving in now to the cost of sexual sin. You say, how do I develop that self-control, right? I get it. Self-control is what I need. That's what he's saying. It starts with instruction. It means learning, correction, learning to receive godly instruction and, and reproof. Notice where he goes now. How do you develop self-control over this area? You meditate, self, you, you develop self-control by meditating on the horrific cost of sexual sin. Remember I said temptation always involves believing lies. And so this is truthful, biblical information that we need to load into the conscience of our spiritual hearts and let it run and play and inform so that in the moment of, of temptation, we remember these sort of things. Now notice the different costs that Solomon says come with sexual sin. First of all, in verse 26, he, he talks about the cost of life. Look at verse 26. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. It's kind of hard to understand what Solomon is saying here, but he's developing a contrast. He's saying, if you hire a prostitute, if you hire a sexual sin for hire in that way, that's the cost of a loaf of bread. A relatively small financial cost, right? But notice, 
adultery is more than just the financial cost that you may pay to pursue that. And that's what Solomon is saying here. He's saying you need to stop and think about the actual cost of sexual sin. And if you hire a prostitute, you think, ah, that's not a whole lot of money. Solomon says that's not the real cost. The real cost is what it does to your soul. And that's actually the word here. It's not the financial cost of sexual sin that's so tragic. It's the cost to your very soul. It's nefesh. It's soul. It's your life. It's who you are. And sexual sin damages your life is what he's saying. And not only that, talking about adultery now, it damages her life. It damages her family. It damages your family. It damages her husband. It damages her children. It damages your children. It, there, there's a, there's a wake of tragic, wicked, broken, horrific consequences of people because of one moment of giving in to sexual sin. Solomon says, think about the cost to your life and let that aid you in turning away and avoiding. Notice, secondly, the cost of punishment. Verse 27, can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Two experiences, two childhood experiences that that, uh, remind me that when I read this verse, they come back to my mind. Uh, When I was probably in third or fourth grade, uh, a friend of mine um, acquired a cherry bomb. You guys remember cherry bombs? I think, I don't know if they're still around today. Uh, It's an illegal firework, at least illegal where I was from. And uh, he and his brother were playing around, and he lit the thing, and something happened, and it went off early in his hand. And all I remember is my friend coming back to school in a sling and his arm was wrapped up and he needed reconstructive surgery. And I just remember, I mean, this this is a young kid. This is a tough guy, you know, football playing type of guy. And I just remember him saying how painful the experience was, not just when the thing went off, but in the ongoing healing process. You can't take a firework into your hand and not risk losing your arm. Um, the other story, I was just telling this actually to somebody the other day. When, when I was, uh, I was probably in like first grade, first or second grade. And um, uh, in, in Southern California where I grew up, um, this is funny, this is called learning to live in Texas. Out here, when the wind is out of the north, it's typically what? It's cold, right? Because it comes from Canada. It's just a cold place, right? In Southern California, when winds come out of the north, they come down through the high desert. So it's typically a very warm or hot, even hot wind, and they call them the Santa Ana winds in Southern California where I grew up. And uh, those are a normal experience, you know, several times a year. And uh, you probably hear on the news, a lot of times there's a great fire danger when that happens because that warm, hot wind, dry climate, low humidity, perfect conditions uh, for fire, plus it dries everything out too. So I'm probably first or second grade. I come home from school. Grandma brings us home. And I look down, and there's a fire a couple doors down on the roof of the house in our neighborhood. Santa Ana wind day, blowing from out of the north to the south, and that fire jumped to the next house, jumped to the next house, jumped to the next house. This is back when the shake roos were still kind of popular, right? Backside of the neighborhood, all the way down, 
about a half a mile from where I grew up was the high school I went to. It jumped over the high school all the way across a major intersection, probably about three quarters of a mile by the time you do the math, to a neighborhood on the other side of the major road and starts doing the same thing there. It's one of the most horrific fires in Orange County history. And, and I, I remember it like it was yesterday because my grandma says, hey, your dad's on the phone. I get on the phone and I'm talking to my dad who's at work and he says, son, go get the hose and start hosing the house down. I'm like, you know, six or seven years old. And it's like, okay, dad, all right, I'm going to go try to do that. And, and um, by God's grace, uh, we were north of where it started and so the wind blew it the other way. What is Solomon saying here? He's saying you play with fire and you're going to get burned. That's what he's saying. Um, You play with fire, you play with sexual sin, and you will get burned. Uh, We see here the, the admonition in verse 29, he will not go unpunished. That means there will be an unavoidable punishment. That will happen. Now we, we can we can kind of guess what Solomon means there. You guys understand in the in the Levitical law in, in the civil law that was over the nation of Israel. If you committed adultery, one of two things would happen to you. You would be either banned from the assembly and pay a huge financial cost if it was a foreigner, and you'd probably be forced to marry the girl. If it was an Israelite both of you would die. So it could be that what Psalm is actually alluding to here is the Israelite law of the death penalty, that uh, you would not get away uh, with this if it was a, a fellow Jewish person that you committed adultery with, or at least a financial cost and banishment from the assembly if it was somebody who was a foreigner. But the point is, there's a great cost. Now notice the analogy. Look at verse 30. It says, Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry, but when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. So on your notes there, though a thief may be pitied for lacking basic necessities, he still has to pay when he's caught, right? And that's what Solomon is saying here. If that's true of a thief who's looking for basic necessities, how much more is the guy who goes outside of his marriage, sleeps with another man's wife, how much more is that man going to be punished? And the cost, finally, of reputation. Look down at verse 33. The cost of reputation. The wounds and disgrace he will find and his reproach will not be blotted out for jealousy enrages a man. He will not spare in the day of vengeance and he will not accept any ransom nor will he be satisfied though you give him many gifts. Verse 33 says wounds and disgrace and approach he will find. He will find. The first word means his character will be wounded. It's the word afflicted. The second word means his life will be dishonored. The word literally means to be disgraced or shamed. And the third word, that word reproach, means his reputation is disgraced and tarnished forever. It costs him his reputation. Now, now, now hear me clearly. Solomon isn't saying there isn't hope in forgiveness. There's not hope in the gospel. There's not hope for change as a person repents and turns to a savior. He's not saying that. What he's saying is, in and of itself, these are the consequences. And we have to remind ourselves of those consequences as a means towards gaining the type of self-control that will keep us far away 
from temptation. Notice the final cost, the cost of vengeance and revenge. We read it a moment ago. An angry and jealous husband will not hold back his revenge. It was not uncommon in this day and age that that husband would seek out and kill the person. In fact, we, we have a few examples in the Bible where because of sexual sin that's committed, somebody loses their life. It could also be that in this man's day of court, when the adulterer and the adulteress are brought before the civil authority of the nation of Israel and the, um, the husband of the adulteress is brought forth to bring charges that he will not hold anything back. And he will demand the most severe punishment. You remember, it's a, it's a loosely related, but you remember when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant and he decided to put her away secretly. You remember that? That, that, that's in part what we're talking about here. He could have brought charges to the elders and had her killed. But he chose not to. And Solomon is saying here, it's unlikely that mercy will be shown on the part of the angry and jealous husband. And then the second thing there, an angry and jealous husband whose wife has been violated will not be satisfied with compensation. He says what? He will not accept any ransom, nor will he be satisfied though you give him many gifts. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can give him. There's nothing you can pay him to satisfy that vengeance and that desire for revenge. Now, we're not saying that's, that's the godly way for the husband to deal with it, but Solomon is saying that's the reality of the world you live in. And that leads us to really the bottom line of what Solomon has to say to his children here. He's saying this, sexual sin is suicide. Sexual sin is spiritual suicide. Look at verse 32. The one who commits adultery with a woman, my version says, is lacking sense. Is that what your version says? The, the man who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. I about dropped my Hebrew Bible when I was translating this. You know what it says? It says a man who commits adultery with a woman doesn't have a heart. He lacks a heart. Now, of course, that's metaphorically speaking. But what's he saying? He's saying there is something majorly wrong in here. And praise God, we have a Savior. We thank the Lord that we have forgiveness and mercy and grace. Listen to this. The one who commits adultery with a woman doesn't have a heart. He who would destroy himself does it. Listen to, listen to the literal translation of this word. It's, it's very, very interesting. It says, he who would exterminate himself, he himself does it. I mean, there's emphasis, there's, there's, there's underlines under this verse. There's passion, there, there's pleading, there's volume. He's saying, son, to do this is to commit suicide. If you want to go exterminate your own soul, this is a great way to do it. And we are... Can you, see, can you see the look 
on the faces of those teenage boys as Solomon pleads to them to avoid committing spiritual suicide by getting involved in sexual sin. We're thankful for a Savior because there, there isn't one of us in this room that hasn't struggled and fallen into sexual sin in some way. It may be in the heart, it may be physical, it may be online. And we, we need, uh, John Owen, the Puritan, talking about fighting sin, he says, we need to, how do you fight sin? He says, we need to load our conscience with the guilt of this sort of thing. And that's what Solomon is doing. Not, not so that we despair, because praise God, we have a Savior. We have a, we have a high priest. We have someone who will forgive us and cleanse us and renew us and give us grace and mercy and change us from the inside out. But guys, that is not where we start. We start right here. And we start remembering that, that sanity, that, that the, the renewing of our mind towards spiritual sanity to avoid the spiritual suicide of sexual sin, it starts by rehearsing in our mind the costs of this sort of sin. And letting that play into our thinking so that in that moment of temptation, this is what floods our minds and it pushes us away. It talks to us. It, it speaks to us. It, it admonishes us. And, and we are so overwhelmed with the weight of what would, what would happen. We turn away and we say no. And we say with Joseph, how could I do this wicked thing and sin against my God? So let's... Um, Let's be meditating. We, we all need this, guys. We all need to meditate on the high cost of sin and then we need to turn around and pour into our young people so that their consciences that are younger and less mature and less experienced than ours so that this is what would, would weigh down their consciences so that in the moment of sexual sin they would turn away in faith and trust to the high priest that will help them when they come to him in that, that moment of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the soberness of this. We need the weight and the seriousness to think about how destructive sexual sin is. It is so common, it is so casual, and, and that is so, so wrong. We need the Word of God to inform us and, and weigh our consciences down with appropriate biblical weight in terms of the cost and destructiveness uh, of sexual sin. Lord, I pray for our young people. Would you, would you load their consciences at an early age with these things? And might the word, as they take it into their heart, as they learn to heed instruction and develop self-control, might the word of God talk to them? And might they listen to the voice of the scriptures in those moments? Father, I pray, even as... as we think about past failures in this area. All these things are true. And, and yet we have a, a wonderful, merciful Savior. And we are so thankful that where we have failed, uh, He offers life and forgiveness and hope. And so we draw near to Him. If that's our place today, these things have stirred up past failure. I pray that we would run to the Savior and we would hear... Once again, his, his call of forgiveness and grace and cleansing. Father, help us to walk closely with him, to walk in holiness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We pray in his name. Amen.